Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 381st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association, or as we know them to be, AHIMA. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about the art of the physician query. It's a subject, of course, that's very familiar to you. Yes, composing a query is definitely an art. A physician has trouble answering a query if they don't understand what is being asked. Indeed, indeed. Reporting our lead story this morning is going to be nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. And Lori Johnson has a Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And Rhonda Buckholtz returns to report on the use of evidence-based medicine to influence CDI improvements. Mm-hmm, that's right. And you have a talkback segment this morning. I do. I am sharing some insights on SEP1, the sepsis core bundle today. It's a topic I wanted to report on last week, but instead I had to report on the 2020 IPPS final rule. Indeed. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare provides technology-enabled revenue integrity services to help you improve efficiency, reduce costs, optimize revenue, and effectively manage complex workflows. Visit changehealthcare.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi, Chuck. And I recently visited some friends in London, and the issue of Brexit was inescapable. The friends my wife and I stayed with were supporters of Brexit, and I was surprised to learn that their support of Brexit assumed an outcome in which the security issues in Northern Ireland would melt away, the economy would surge, and century-old feuds with Scotland and Wales would dissipate of their own. Conversely, and now not surprisingly, we learned that opponents of Brexit saw the end of the world as they knew it, including the splitting up of the United Kingdoms and riots in the streets. Like their Brexit counterparts, opponents of the ACA make the argument that if the ACA is struck down, any positive parts of the ACA can be restored with new legislation. Given the current legislative standoff, that's not what I see happening any more than the rosy view of the Brexit supporters. In evaluating the overturn of the ACA overnight in a single decision by the Supreme Court, let's look at some of the immediate outcomes. Under the ACA, children are allowed to stay on their parents' health insurance until they turn 26. If the ACA is struck down, children over the age of 21, even if they were full-time students, would no longer be covered under their parents' plans. Under the ACA, private plans created after 2010 were required to cover preventative services with no copayments and they're exempt from deductibles. Consumers who applied to new plans have access to external appeals process if their coverage is denied. In the past, the high cost of screening services like colonoscopies resulted in people skipping such tests and services. Should the ACA suddenly be struck down, I think we would see an increase in deaths from diseases like colon cancer that could have been treated relatively cheaply in the early stages. Under the ACA, insurance companies are prohibited from dropping coverage if someone gets really sick. They can't create lifetime coverage limits. They can't deny coverage to children with pre-existing conditions. I do have a personal story around this. In 2008, I had a blood clot in my left leg. 
On being hospitalized, I found out that part of the clot had broken off and moved in my lungs. I was off my feet for three months and have to take blood thinners for the rest of my life. And as soon as I could get back, I got to working out every day and things seemed to be going well. And then I found out that my small business insurance health plan was dropping me. I was one of the million of Americans that were uninsurable. I'm reminded of an old adage, careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's August 13, 2019. And on this day in history, in 1918, Ofa Mae Johnson becomes the first woman to enlist in the United States Marines. And, of course, the rest is history. Today, you're listening to the 381st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Join sessions and conversations covering CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Code Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than this meeting. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 Codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinicalcoding for more information. Here now for the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report is Senior Healthcare Consultant Laurie Johnson. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica. Last week, I announced that the 2020 ICD-10 CM guidelines were finally released that Tuesday morning. I thought that today I would talk about some of the updates to the guidelines. Changes in the guidelines are bolded so you can see where changes are made. There are also underlines which indicate an item has been moved within the in the guidelines, and italics is used to indicate revision of headings. Throughout the guidelines this year, you'll see modification to the term physician to provider. At the beginning of the guidelines, there is an explanation that provider means physician or qualified healthcare practitioner who is legally accountable for establishing the patient's diagnosis. We see this for the first time in Section 1, Chapter 1, Guidelines Under Code-Only Confirmed Cases, and this section is referring to Zika. You will also see some wordsmithing. In Section 1, Chapter 2, in the section Primary Neoplasm Previously Excised, the term diagnosis has been added to first listed. There are some more meteor changes in Section 1, Chapter 9, in the section under Other Types of MI. This section has been simplified so that Type 2 MI, due to demand ischemia, is coded to I21.A1 with with underlying cause coded first. If Type 2 acute myocardial infarction is described as STEMI or non-STEMI, only I21A1 should be coded. STEMI and non-STEMI code assignment is only for type 1 acute myocardial infarctions. In Section 1, Chapter 12, section titled Patients Admitted with Pressure Ulcers Documented as Healed, 
the patients, um, and let me just go back, and there's also a second section um, within that same chapter titled Patients Admitted with Non-Pressure Ulcers as Healed. Both sections were clarified that if the document documentation is present on admission, then no code assignment happens. So let me just rephrase. If the documentation when the patient is admitted says that these pressure ulcers are healed, we don't code them. In Section 1, Chapter 15, the section titled Normal Delivery, perinatal has been changed to postnatal. The big additions are in Section 1, Chapter 19, Iatrogenic Injuries and Physiofractures. Iatrogenic injuries that occur during or as a result of medical intervention, these injuries should be coded as complications. For physiofracture, the guidance is to assign only the code that identifies the physiofracture. A separate code to identify the specific bone should not be coded. I see some orthopedic and radiology and ER provider education with that update. Another update is related to new codes T50.91 subcategory. If multiple unspecified drugs, medicinal or biological substance were taken, assign a code from T50.91 subcategory. In Section 1, Chapter 19, Section on Complications of Care, a new paragraph has been added that states that the intraoperative and postoperative complications should be assigned unless the complication is indexed to a T code. Section 1, Chapter 21, Counseling Section provides guidance that Z71.84 health counseling related to travel is to be used for health risk and safety counseling for future travel purposes. The guideline changes, new codes, and CC and MCC designation changes will be part of the topic of my fiscal year 20 ICD-10-CM webinar, which will be next week. So back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thanks very much, Lori. It was a pleasure to have you on the broadcast. Be sure to listen to her webcast next Thursday. Thanks again, Erica, and thank you, Lori. Our Tuesday focus is how evidence-based medicine can influence CDI improvements. Here now with our Tuesday focus is Rhonda Bocholtz. Good morning, Rhonda. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me back. Um, so, you know, when I was thinking about what article to write next, I was uh, kind of scrolling through social media, and I continue to see a lot of conversations uh, about CDI efforts that honestly are less than effective when we're working with physicians. Um, and, and honestly, at the end of the day, a little bit troublesome on capturing the patient's journey. Um, CDI efforts should be about documenting for evidence-based medicine and not coding guidelines. I mean, I get it. Honestly, you almost need to be an Olympic athlete to hurdle all of the administrative burdens that are thrown at physician uh, practices these days. So we try to get creative in making cheat sheets around coding guidelines, reporting measures, bundles, and those types of things. But coding guidelines have no place in physician's documentation of the patient's clinical journey. 
It should be uh, the place for capturing the clinical evidence of the true patient encounter. But a lot of times that gets sidetracked by vendors and others, um, and sometimes CDI specialists setting, um, that are helping set up EHRs or physician documentation templates. So in, a, in an EMR or an EHR, those drop downs or these pick boxes that solely focus on hitting the required elements or bullets if it's an EM. Um, fail to capture what's truly needed for the physicians to document, um, to be able to spell out the true clinical condition. When we limit physicians uh, or other providers to those little quick picks, um, focusing on those creative ways of documenting just for coding rules, it fails the physician and the patient every single time. It then puts us into the system of defense uh, defending our reasons for ordering the test or the services, um, defending our documentation under quality refuse or audits, defending our, uh, our reasons for choosing certain diagnosis codes. Um, you saw in uh, a couple weeks ago when I reported on health plans that are starting to ding providers for not having the right documentation um, for the diagnosis code. The most effective way to setting up templates or assisting physicians with faster ways of documenting is to use evidence-based medicine templates. Um, that will really influence our CDI improvements um, by utilizing the evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine is a platform of best evidence used to make clinical decisions on the treatment of the patient. It integrates the clinical experience and the patient values with research information, and it's constantly evolving. There's new data, new technology, new standards of care. Um, so I start out by asking physicians what they typically do for a certain encounter based on a chronic condition or whatever it is they happen to be treating. Then I look at the standard of care or the evidence-based medicine policy, and I consult with the provider for buy-in, um, where the information can be captured. Uh, is, is it in the history or only in the exam? Can I do it with the form? Um, is it in the assessment of plan or on the orders? Then we work collaboratively on how we can actually capture that information. EBM is widely used as it's also used to develop our clinical indicators, our coverage decisions, and our payer policies. Clinical indicators use the EBMs. So for those of us that work in surgical practices, you're most likely very familiar with these guidelines. Um, and how to get our services or items approved. Um, outside of that, though, it gives us well-defined information regarding the clinical uh, in conditions. So instead of showing physicians sequencing guidelines or the bullets that are needed to fit a level, what we do is create meaningful documentation that very uh, much uh, details the patient's clinical journey um, and then actually hits all of the measures we need, guys. When we look to EBM for our answers, it, it meets all of our regulations and our requirements. Um, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rhonda. I couldn't agree with you more. Tell the story, tell the truth. That was Rhonda Buckholtz. Rhonda is Chief Compliance Officer for Century Vision Global. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Rhonda. And you can read Rhonda's excellent reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And coming up, Terry Fletcher is going to report on the art of the physician query. She joined us in 60 seconds. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by.
staying on top of pressing coding and documentation issues can be challenging, especially when new ICD-10 codes are released. No wonder you struggle to keep up to date. Plus, there's the need for recertification and the stress of obtaining continuing education credits. Now, with a subscription from ICD-10 Monitor, you have premium content plus continuing education credits from AHIMA and AAPC. Subscribe to the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series, premium content, accessible for in-house and remote staff anywhere, anytime. Now, for a low annual rate, you can subscribe to more than 40 curated education webcasts. Plus, for a limited time, get access to a free three-day trial of the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast subscription. To activate your free three-day trial, go to the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore. This morning, our lead story is about physician queries, specifically the need to ensure that your physician queries are effective and compliant. With more on the art of the physician query, here is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So over the past couple of months, Talk 10 Tuesday has reported on the question, are HIM professionals qualified to query for clinical validity? Now, that question may be argumentative, but how about the query to the physician? That is not. According to many authoritative resources, such as AHIMA, CMS, AAPC, AMA, etc., a query can be a powerful communication tool used for clarification of documentation in a health record so that we may achieve accurate coding assignments. But how do we as coding professionals ensure our queries are effective and compliant? Well, first, it's important to understand when to query a physician, and AHIMA's guidelines state that a query should be considered when health record documentation includes conflicting, imprecise, incomplete, ambiguous, or inconsistent documentation, associated clinical indicators related to a specific condition, a diagnosis without an underlying validation clinically, or an unclear POA, which is a present on admission condition. These are good reasons to generate a query. However, it is also possible to read too far into the documentation and make connections that don't really exist. So before submitting a query, stop and consider the appropriateness. If there is an issue in the patient documentation that needs clarification from the physician, then a query is necessary and you should not be afraid of it. So an example of an appropriate query on unclear congestive heart failure would be a patient is admitted for right hip fracture. The HMP notes that the patient has a history of chronic congestive heart failure. A recent echo showed a left ventricular ejection fraction of 25%. The patient's home medications include metaprolol, XL, lisopronil, and Lasix. So leading, please document if you agree the patient has chronic diastolic heart failure. You don't want to say that. Non-leading or an appropriate query is it noted in the impression of the HMP, or it is noted in the impression of the HMP that the patient has chronic congestive heart failure and a recent echocardiogram noted under the cardiac review of systems revealed EF of 25%. Then you ask the physician, can the, heart, can the chronic heart failure be further specified as, and you would give examples of a multiple choice answer, chronic systolic heart failure, chronic diastolic heart failure, and then you would go on to say chronic systolic and diastolic heart failure, some other type of heart failure, or undetermined. So we're not here to educate the physician about coding at this time. And if you quote the medical record, make sure it's word for word. Our goal is to make the record clear, nothing more, and to give the physician options. An example of a yes or no query would be, so your clinical scenario, a patient is admitted with cellulitis around a recent operative site, wound site, and only 
cellulitis is documented without any relationship to the recent surgical procedure. So your query is, is the cellulitis due to or the result of the surgical procedure? Please document your response in the health record or below. So you want either yes, no, other, or clinically undetermined. And then then obviously the name and date of the physician. This is a example of a yes or no query, which they're not my favorite, but sometimes necessary, involving a documented condition potentially resulting from a recent operative procedure that was also apparent upon admission. Be sure to ask clear questions and always provide the physicians with multiple answer options if you can, and always have an out such as an unable to be determined, because this will aid in the query being compliant. Never introduce new information. In a query, you should not ask a direct direct question about something that was never diagnosed without giving the physician an open choice. And reread your query and ask yourself, should this query be sent? And this query, is this query clear and concise? And does this query solicit an answer that I can code from? If you answer no to any of these questions, you need to need, need to either rework the query or don't query at all. An example that comes up frequently in orthopedic practices is when the rules already give you an answer. So you do not need to waste the physician's time with the query. An example in the ICD-10 coding guidelines, 1.C.19.C for fractures, states a fracture not indicated as open or closed should be coded as closed. So if the physician only states left tibia shaft fracture, you can code S82.202A, unspecified fracture of shaft of left tibia, initial encounter for closed fracture. If fracture not indicated whether displaced or not displaced should be coded to displaced. So you can see my example there. If it already has it in the guidelines saying that it defaults to a certain condition, then you don't need to query the physician. An example in cardiology or primary care, patient presents today for DM management, patient uses insulin compliantly. The type of diabetes mellitus was not documented, but in ICD-10 chapter four, it states if the type of diabetes is not documented in the medical record, the default is E11.9 type two diabetes. It's important to know your guidelines surrounding your ICD-10 codes before you enlist a query. It not only gives you credibility and your expertise, but it doesn't hold up your claim submission or waste your physician's time to research the patient. Check out my article today on the art of the physician query with added tips to help you write an effective and compliant query and success in your communication process between you and your physician. Dr. Reamer, back to you. I have one point also. Uh, make sure that you don't give choices that are not clinically valid to avoid leading, or you're going to end up with a clinical validation query being needed. So you got to be careful if you're trying to make sure that you're not leading them to a single um, diagnosis. If you give them something that makes no sense, clinical sense, then you're going to have to go back and fix it again. So be careful when you're giving, picking out your choices. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thanks for those comments, too. And thank you, Terry. And as Terry said, you can read her reporting on the art of the physician curry in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. And now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. I'm the co-chair of the American College of Physician Advisors CDI Education Subcommittee. In writing the information for physician advisors on sepsis, I read a lot of materials regarding the SEP1 bundle, also referred to as the sepsis core measures. I found some interesting points that I want to share with you um, today and next week. Unlike many of the quality metrics which come from the ICD-10-CM codes we capture from the clinician's documentation, 
Step one is abstracted. That means that there is a magic sepsis abstraction quality fairy who reads through the charts and determines whether the core measure was applicable or not and whether we met the criteria or not. It is dependent on both documentation and data. There are very strict rules and guidance and commentary on the rules by CMS. The algorithmic process is complex. Severe sepsis and septic shock trigger the core measures. It is my opinion that under the current definition of sepsis, that is, life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated host response to infection, all patients with sepsis should trigger SEP1. All sepsis now is the condition formerly known as severe sepsis. There are organizations who philosophically choose to retain the definition of sepsis as being presumed or confirmed infection plus SERS, which is two out of the four of temperature derangement, tachycardia, tachypnea, and abnormal white count. These charts will provoke review by the quality team, but if there is no organ dysfunction, they do not meet SEP1 criteria. On the other hand, if providers no longer use the phrase severe sepsis because it has been eliminated from the medical lexicon, they are not protected from being included because the R65.20 code isn't essential to fall into the core measures. Having a sepsis diagnosis and clinical indication of organ dysfunction due to the sepsis triggers SEP1 even if no one ever documents or codes R65.20, severe sepsis. This is because there are two ways to get a yes value for was severe sepsis present. The first is that the physician, APN or PA, documents severe sepsis. The second is that presence of severe sepsis is established by clinical criteria as noted by the abstractor. What are those criteria? One, the patient has a presumed or confirmed infection. Two, two or more manifestations of systemic infection according to the general criteria for the systemic inflammatory response, or SIRS, as I noted above. And three is organ dysfunction. Severe sepsis was defined as having organ dysfunction, but SEP1 is more prescriptive. The organ dysfunction is specified as hypotension, acute respiratory failure requiring some sort of mechanical ventilation, creatinine exceeding 2.0, low urine output, hyperbilirubinemia, thrombocytopenia, coagulopathy, or hyperlactatemia. I would posit that waiting for hypoxia to require mechanical ventilation or needing AKI to have a creatinine over 2 is putting the patient behind the eight ball. Institutions that are worried about missing early sepsis should be concerned that the SEP1 criteria may not be casting a wide enough net. The discussion as to whether SEP1 is clinically valid and is improving outcomes is being tabled for a different day and forum. My advice is for providers to use specific terminology to achieve clarity as to whether there is sepsis and to permit coders to use R65.20, which is always indicated now. My recommended macro is 
sepsis due to, and then here you insert the infection with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by the organ dysfunction. We will be posting this script after the broadcast so you can refer back to it. Join us next week when I will continue discussing SEP1. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Eric. I appreciate it. That's going to be a wrap for our 381st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Rhonda Bulkholz, whose story is in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Terry Fletcher, she also has her story in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Lori Johnson, you're going to get a copy of her broadcast script. Also, Tim Powell with us today, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.